Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4? Genesis chapter 4, it's page 6 in your pew Bibles. And we're also going to be reading one verse from Hebrews 11. We started last week looking at Hebrews 11 and talking about living by faith as we begin this new year. And we're going to continue on with, with the stories that are brought up, many of the stories that are brought up in, in Hebrews 11. The author to this group of, of Jewish Christians, the, the Hebrews, uh, are, is trying to help them understand how it, how it fits that uh, now they've found their Messiah. And how does the Old Testament fit in with, with that? And, and what does faith look like in now with Jesus in the mix, in addition to their regular Judaism, how, how do those all fit together? So we're going to focus our attention on faith. He starts with a, a definition of faith, and then he simply goes into all kinds of illustrations about how faith is worked out in different areas of our life. And so last week we began with the definition, uh, this this week and the next number of weeks, we're going to look at how does that, how does faith affect different areas of our life? And this morning, or this evening, faith in worship. So let's start with Genesis four, and then I'll look at verse four of Hebrews eleven as well. Genesis four verses one through sixteen. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, "With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man." Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain that, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then one verse from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It's page 1875 in your pew Bibles. Well, because while the Genesis 4 passage deals mostly with Cain. It's interesting that Hebrews 11 verse 4 deals mostly with Abel. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks 
even though he is dead. Would you join me in prayer before we come to God's Word? Father God, we pray that you would help us to understand this in a way that we can live it out. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we begin this new year focusing on faith. Last week's catechism question and answers focused on the fact that we are right with God only as we accept it through true faith. What is true faith? What is true faith in Jesus? Well, the catechism also dealt with that in an earlier question and answer, which we also read last week. Question and answer 21, where it asks, what is true faith? And the answer is, true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It's also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. True faith, we said, was in a sense of the head and the heart. That question and answer 21 is actually based on Hebrews 11 verse 1, which we looked at uh, last week Sunday evening. It's a faith of the head and the heart. But then we said in the Jewish thinking, it was, it's more than that. That the word uh, that they used for faith, emunah, also can be translated faithfulness. That it's not just faith of head and heart, but it's a faith of a hands and feet as well. That the Jews didn't really distinguish between the two. And I think that's the, a good biblical definition of faith. And the author of Hebrews seems to take that same definition because as he goes on then, he moves from that definition of the faith of the head and the heart to a number of Old Testament examples of faith in action. Faith in action. Now sometimes, and I'm, I'm sure I'm guilty of this too in the past, we call these folks the heroes of faith. But that's probably a misnomer because as we see in Heidelberg Catechism question answer 61, it is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. It's not through any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. So we have to be careful about calling certain people heroes of faith. We have to be careful with these people in Hebrews 11 not to overemphasize them as people of incredibly great faith because as we'll see, some of them also had incredibly great lapses of faith just like we do. And yet God still accepted them, just like he still accepts us. But through these examples of faith, we can see how faith touches different aspects of our lives. And this, this evening, we're going to look at the example of Abel, which deals, I think, with our attitude in worship. Our attitude in worship. Now, while the Genesis 4 story emphasizes his murder and the spread of sin, and that certainly plays into God's evaluation of Cain and his offering. Hebrews 11.4 comes from another angle. It's focused is on God's acceptance or rejection of our worship. And it kind of forces us to ask the question, how do we worship God? From the heart? Or going through the motions? How does God look at our worship? Like Abel's or like Cain's? Well, as you look at the Genesis 4 story, particularly the, the offerings, the story's always been kind of a bit of a puzzle. Why did God reject Cain's offering? 
Why did he accept Abel's offering? Most people start by looking at the offerings themselves. Now we have to remember that since no sacrificial offering system had been set up yet, this was long before God gave the Torah to, to uh, Moses and the people of Israel. Since the no sacrificial system had set up, been set up, they weren't confined to a rigid system that gave them guidelines as to how they were to present their offerings. And so we must assume that these are simply gifts to God for his goodness. Flocks and produce, perhaps at harvest time. And both Cain and Abel seem to be freely worshiping God. I've, I've looked at this passage and I, I keep thinking, well, maybe Abel offered his offering first and Cain was just copycatting him. But no, <laughs> Cain's actually listed first. In fact, it kind of goes back and forth between Cain and Abel being first. And I think the... I think the author in Hebrews is using that in the in Genesis is using that kind of to say you know they are kind of on the same level. So it wasn't necessarily the offering, but we'll we'll come back to that. They both seem to be freely worshiping God. One doesn't seem to be dragged into it by the other. One hasn't been dragged into it by the law feeling like he's obligated to do it. These are free gifts. That's led some more liberal scholars to blame God's partiality or whimsical nature, that he was accepting and rejecting offerings without cause. But most people look at the offerings themselves. Was Abel's offering somehow better or Cain's offering somehow worse? Abel's offering was that of a shepherd, the herder of sheep and goats. So he naturally gave from the fruit of his flock. We're told he gave the best portions of the firstborn. And that's important. That's a a detail that we're not given with Cain's offering. Now this would later be required of Israel in the Torah, that they give the best portions of the firstborn. But here Abel seems to be simply recognizing God's provision and that the firstborn and best belong to him. We're given an elaborate description of Abel's offering. So he is clearly going out of the way to give his best. Cain's offering was that of a farmer of the soil. So he also gave from the fruit of of his crop, probably a grain offering. But his offering is not described in detail. And that's led to a lot of speculation. Some Ask, well, maybe a lamb is better than a grain offering or a fruit offering. But that's not even true later in the Torah. In fact, the word that's used for for Cain's offering here is the same one used in Leviticus 2 to describe the grain offering that one of the five offerings that God wants from his people. Did he fail to bring his first fruits? Again, we're not told that. But... Again, he's not obligated by the Torah at this point, which didn't exist. Did he just grab some vegetables or some some bread on the way out the door, an offering of convenience? Again, we're not told any of those things. All this speculation, however, is good in one sense because it leads us to ask penetrating questions about our worship of God. Do we give from the first and the best? 
or wait until we see if we have enough for our needs and our wants? Do we offer what's convenient? Do we comprehend that it all comes from God and belongs to God in the first place? And it's good for us to reflect on these questions. But neither Genesis 4 nor 11, Hebrews 11 verse 4, tells us necessarily that the offering was the primary cause of acceptance or rejection. So what was? I think it was actually the attitudes behind those offerings, the attitudes of of these men. If you look in Genesis 4, it says, The Lord looked on fa- with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Did you notice that? The offerings are only mentioned secondarily. It's the men that are, that are mentioned in the primary place in that sentence. Apparently, God didn't accept or reject them based on their offerings as much as on their attitudes. As God would later say when he chose David against all odds to be the next king of Israel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So I think the offerings are important only in that they demonstrate the attitude lying behind them. So what are their attitudes? Well, Genesis 4 is really all about Cain and his sinfulness. Not really much about Abel at all. We're never really told why God rejected Cain and and his offering. But we get a hint in verse 7 of Genesis 4. Because God asks the question after Cain is mad that his offering is not accepted. God asks the question, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? The hint is something was wrong about Cain. Something about Cain was wrong. What was it? Well, we don't know for sure, but the Bible builds a picture of Cain's character. In verse 5, we see his bitter anger. Instead of repentance over whatever might have been wrong, keeping that offering from being accepted by God, he just gets angry at God. In verses 8 and 9, we we see his lying spirit. He lies to, to Abel by not telling him what, what, what the problem is, why they're going out to the field. He lies to God about, about Abel and where he's at. We see his violence in verse 8. He murders Abel. We see that he's irresponsible. Verse 9, he shows callous indifference to the murder rather than repentance. He felt no responsibility for his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? And I think a lot of this all goes down to the attitude that we finally see in verses 13 and 14. And that is that Cain was self-centered. And we see that in that he felt sorry not about his sin, not about his actions. He felt sorry for himself that he was going to get punished and that someone might take revenge and kill him. Self-centered, and I think that's the original sin, by the way. Pride that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Then also, I think we could say that unlike Abel, who's described as righteous in Hebrews 11, verse 4, Cain was unrighteous. It doesn't say those words in Genesis 4, but in the New Testament, we get witness. 1 John 3, verse 12 says, Cain belonged to the evil one. The book of Jude identifies Cain with the godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality 
and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. God appears to have rejected Cain's offering because he had the wrong attitude. He had the wrong motive. Proverbs 15, verse 8 says, The Lord detests the sacrifice of a wicked man. The Lord detests the sacrifice of a wicked man. Now we can only speculate about Cain's offering. Was it mere formality? Was he trying to buy favor with God as a lot of the pagans did? They tried to use their offerings to to manipulate the gods and the like. But I think from the perspective of Hebrews 11, in contrast with Abel, it's probably simply a lack of real faith in God that caused him to be faithless in his offering and faithless in everything else. Again, reminding ourselves, faith and faithfulness are two sides of the same coin. That word emunah. Then there's Abel. While Genesis 4 is is largely about Cain, Hebrews 11 verse 4 focuses on Abel and his faith. And his attitude shows us something about his character. And I think his attitude is revealed in his offering. The fact that he took pains to give the best portions of the firstborn, not directed by the law, not directed by the Torah to do so, he just gave from his heart to God, which is really a good description of true worship, giving from your heart to God. And this is identified as faith. And so in a sense, the author of the Hebrews is, is telling us that faith, already in Abel, faith is more important than works. His faith, his attitude was more important even than the offering. And yet, our faith is expressed often through our works. Abel's not trying to fulfill the Torah. He's not trying to buy God's favor. He was worshiping God by faith is the testimony we get from Scripture. Ah, but here's where comes the interesting question. Faith in what? This is an issue that we sometimes have when we talk about Old Testament characters. And we say we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Where does that leave them? Faith in what? Christian salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. What about Abel's faith? Well, perhaps Abel is responding to the Genesis 3.15 promise given to his parents that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It's a real possibility. Whether or not that was the case, I think that it's safe to say Old Testament faith, as it's illustrated in Hebrews 11, was always faith in God and his promises. Old Testament faith was always faith in God and his promises, and the ultimate promise would be realized in Jesus. And so there's kind of an indirect, in an indirect way, it was faith in Jesus. It was faith in God and his promises. They didn't know exactly how that was going to work out, but they trusted God, and eventually that led to Jesus. Look at um, Hebrews 11, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. If you think about God's ultimate promise, it's redemption in Jesus Christ. They did not receive that yet, but they saw it and they welcomed it from a distance. By faith in God and his promises, then Abel is declared righteous. Did you ever notice that 
Not only New Testament believers are credited with righteousness, but even Abel was, in a sense, justified by faith, as, as Paul says is true about Abraham and is true about Noah and Moses and the like. In fact, even Jesus calls Abel righteous in Matthew 23, verse 35. Not because of his offering, not because of any works, but it was because his worship and everything he did was preceded and characterized by faith in a God who would ultimately act in his son Jesus. And then the last thing the author of the Hebrew says is, and Abel still speaks today. That's well, kind of an interesting, interesting thought. And one of the things I've learned that might be the background to this is you may have noticed in Genesis 4 that God says, Abel's blood cried out to me from the ground. Now the rabbis make a huge deal of this because the word for blood, dam, is actually plural there, damim. It's plural. His bloods cried out from the ground, and the rabbi said that's because it represents each of his descendants that were never born because he was murdered. And that all of those descendants are. Now that's a t- typical rabbi way of thinking, but maybe there's, a, maybe there's some background to this that Abel still speaks. It still cries out from the ground. At the very least, Abel still speaks today, reminding us that we must decide whether our worship will be mere formality or from the heart. Kent Hughes writes, there's a disease that's particularly virulent in this part of the 20th century. We'll update that to 21st century. The disease is called the cirrhosis of the giver. It was actually discovered about 34 AD and ran a terminal course in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. It's an acute condition which renders the patient hand immobile when it attempts to move from the billfold to the offering plate. The remedy is to remove the afflicted from the house of God, since it's clinically observable that this condition disappears in alternate environments such as golf courses or clubs or restaurants. Actually, he writes, the disease is not a motor problem, but a heart problem. The best remedy is to fall in love with God with all your heart. For where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Will our worship be mere formality or from the heart? And do we realize that it's not so much important as important how we worship as why we worship, our attitude, our motive? Abel is at the head of a long line of people who worship by faith. And God calls us to continue that line, to worship and live by faith in Jesus, so that one day it will be said about us as it was of Abel. By faith he, by faith she, was commended by God as righteous. May that be God's statement about us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these stories that remind us of how you want us to live, how you want us to put our faith into action. Help us to learn from them. Help us to to have that kind of attitude of heart that expresses itself in this way in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by worshiping our King. We'll worship the King, all glorious above. We'll sing, we're going to sing all five stanzas and give him uh, the fullness of worship from this hymn. It's from Lift Up Your Hearts, number two. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>